Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and thank you for joining me once again to send another unwilling games industry member to a deserted place for the 38th time. Joining me this week is a guest who I think is known especially for two things, gorgeous strategy games and a long-running Star Wars joke. He's the managing director of the excellently named Mode 7 Games, an indie company he formed with friend Ian Hardingham back in 2005. Mode 7 have been since responsible for superb titles such as their first game, Determinants, a multiplayer sword fighting game, uh, your awesome PC Smash hit strategy title, Frozen Synapse, and just last year, Frozen Cortex. On a current day-to-day basis, he's working on the follow-up to Frozen Synapse with Frozen Synapse 2. And they're also diving into the world of publishing with the absolutely gorgeous looking Tokyo 42. My guest this week is Mr. Paul Kilduff Taylor. Hello, Paul. Hello, Liam. Thanks for that uh, impeccably researched intro there. I'm very impressed. (laughs) Thank you very much. How are you doing today, Paul? Mm, I'm doing good. Yeah, uh, it's nice to have a bit of a break from all the stuff you mentioned, things are quite hectic around here. So it's nice to come and talk to you about games. So so what sort of... Obviously, you're working on Frozen Synapse 2, which is Mode 7's own game, and then you're publishing Tokyo 42. What's sort of taking up most of the time right now, then? At the moment, we're working on our console launch plan for Tokyo 42. So we're doing a simultaneous release, uh, which is kind of our first time doing that. So there's a lot of planning, a lot of work that has to go in in order to kind of sync everything up make sure that we've got our launch timing sorted out. And we're also working with the developers on some of the tricky final stages of dev on that game. It's quite a complicated game. Uh, it's big single-player open-world component, so there's a lot of work happening around that. So most of my time is on that at the moment. Ian's working on Frozen Synapse 2, and I'm kind of dipping in and out of that as well. Um, we're also looking at some new stuff, potentially. It hasn't been announced yet. Perhaps ah. some new things on the publishing side. So, okay. uh, yeah, a lot happening. Exciting stuff as well, because obviously Frozen Snaps 1 um, was, I imagine for you guys, just awesome. Uh, Mm. I've seen that game appear on Steam, recommended lists all the time. Uh, I I think I finally picked it up maybe two years ago during a Steam sale. Um, It's excellent. No wonder people were talking about it. Um, So obviously that, making the second one must be incredibly exciting and also tokyo 42 looks absolutely gorgeous a game looks incredible (laughs) oh well thank you very much yeah frozen synapse one was a huge surprise for us um came out back in 2011 which in current pc gaming years is about 30 years ago now Uh, it's just kind of (laughs) everything's changed so much since then Um, we were just trying to make a good game. Our first game, Determinants, which you mentioned, was kind of an interesting experiment, but it didn't really come together and gel very well. The presentation wasn't very good. And Frozen Synapse was just about, you know, can we make a good game? It took us four years, um, and it it was just a really sort of extensive collaboration between me and Ian. He is an amazing mechanics designer. He has a very clear idea of what he wants the player to experience. And then I can kind of come in and work on the more sort of outward presentation side of things, making sure that people understand what the game is, making sure it looks exciting, the player has good feedback, that sort of thing. So that's where our skills kind of balance out. And then, yeah, Frozen Synapse 2, trying to build on that, do something really ambitious, this huge procedurally generated city. Um, 
where everything takes place. It's a really big new departure for us. So there's lots and lots of exciting things to work on there. And we're kind of just fleshing that out. Yeah. And at the same time, taking on working with another developer. So we don't <laughs> we don't make our own lives easy, but it's really, really exciting. Um, working with Smack, the, the, the guys who are developing Tokyo 42 has just been an amazing experience. They work in a very different way to us. Um, yeah. So it's it's good times. That's excellent. Um, so let's start, let's roll back the years a little bit and go back to maybe talk about how you first sort of got into the industry. Um, I understand that before all this game development and before starting Mode 7, uh, you were a freelance writer for magazines. Yes. Um, and quite a few of them were game magazines, such as PC Gamer and Edge. So... Mm. Tell me a little bit about how you sort of fell into the games industry. Was it the sort of writing side first or had you always sort of had an eye on maybe entering into development? So things actually started with music. Um, I've been writing music sort of ever since I was about 14, 15. And Ian originally got me on board with determinants to do the sound and write the music. Um, and then when I left university, we started Mode 7. We didn't really have any money, uh, which was a, a sort of slight encumbrance to starting a games company. So it, that was the time when I kind of looked at my skills, such as they were. I did an English degree, so I thought I can write about the things I know about. And the things I knew about were music technologies. So I worked for a magazine called Computer Music in the UK, worked for them for, for quite a long time. I had a really good experience there, um, just as a freelancer. And then other game stuff kind of came out of that, really. So at that time, it was kind of just about you know, can we keep working on a game and earn some money doing some other things as well? Um, so it was really good. Being a writer was really, really useful. I got to um, interview a lot of people who knew a lot more than me. Um, it's a really good way of kind of picking up information about an industry that you don't know anything about. Um, certainly on the music tech side, it was immensely helpful. I could go and interview any composer or producer I wanted and, and say, how did you do this thing? And they'd tell me. Um, so that was really handy. So I, I do have really fond memories of that time. And it was really helpful in kind of starting me off. Excellent. So what was the sort of transition to then maybe thinking, oh, video games, sort of maybe putting music <laughs> aside a little bit to... Yeah talk about video games a little bit more well one of the things was i realized that it's amazingly hard to make money as a musician and it's talking to games composers sort of interviewing them it's amazingly hard to get started as a, as a games composer a lot of the guys i was interviewing were you know really senior they'd worked in film before they had all these contacts so i thought well the only way i can really do this is if i own a games company um and because ian and i were working together we kind of decided to sort of formalize it and start a company um and then that i knew that would give me a, a vehicle to write the music that i wanted to write and also have creative control over the projects a lot of the time as a composer you're coming in and there's a, a you know creative control is vested elsewhere and you have to fulfill a brief and this was going to give me you know a chance to do that and i'd always played games and ian and i had kind of grown up together we've been friends for, for years playing games and so it was kind of just an extension of that whenever i needed to kind of find work that suited my interest and, and brought all my skills together it's always been games one of my very first jobs was working in a video game store um selling games to kind of grumpy parents at christmas time uh, uh so i've always kind of gravitated towards the games industry in in any situation um it, it just fascinates me i'm fascinated by the way that games are made the incredible talent that goes into making them um and it's always great to work with people who share that passion so you've obviously you started mode 7 back in 2005 and you 
this year will be the 11th year. Uh, yeah. Are you still enjoying it as much as <laughs> when you first started, when you were intrigued about how game development was going? Well, the first most important thing is that I'm still alive. And uh, <laughs> I think it, it, games, it can be really it can be really tough. I think some people work too hard. I think they put too much pressure on themselves and they can certainly burn out um, by this kind of point. So it's been a process of me trying to find, you know, the right balance of things in my life to kind of get me through it. Yeah, I, I definitely still enjoy it. I, I'm still really kind of searching for the, you know, the, the perfect thing, the, the game that's going to really, really take off um that's going to run for like a a large number of years and, and kind of just something that really really catches on and that is such an exciting and sort of enticing prospect that i just can't sort of help myself wanting to work on more games and through publishing it's it's great because we're getting in touch with more developers and more projects just to kind of find that one thing that's that's going to blow up that that's kind of my dream really um and it's it's a fun thing to chase it is very competitive and very hard and can be depressing at times uh, as I sort of alluded to, but but that's the thing that keeps me going. It's it's making something that a, a large number of people really respond to. One of the best things about it is um, the community that comes out of sort of playing the games that, that you create or that you help to create. I'm very lucky that I'm now very good friends with a few people from the Frozen Synapse community who, who you know, we just met purely from their interest in the game and I count yeah. them as very close friends. And that's that's a wonderful thing, uh, not something I ever really expected. So it's just a really nice benefit of doing what we do. Excellent. It sounds like it, even after 11 years, it's still going pretty smoothly and there are obviously some <laughs> incredibly exciting things going on. Well, we're going to sort of talk about the games that have then maybe inspired you to sort of carry on with the journey you're going on and maybe <laughs> sort of influence you as well as just being pure favorites of yours as well. Um, yeah. So your list is quite varied and wonderful and spread across multiple genres. So I'm, I'm raring to get into it and especially into the first game as well. So why don't we listen to some excellent music from the first game and let's start talking about Paul's final games. So kicking off your list today, Paul, is 
an absolutely excellent side-scrolling beat-em-up that was developed for was developed by Sega back in 1992 for the Mega Drive and the Genesis. If you're in America, it's the second game in the Streets of Rage series, and it's just the absolutely stunning and excellent Streets of Rage 2. Paul, please tell me why the first game you're taking with you today is Streets of Rage 2. Okay, so this is probably the biggest nostalgia trip on the list. There are a few nostalgia trips, but this one, the first time I encountered this game was at primary school. And my school had a kind of fair, like a summer fair, where, you know, very British, kind of stand selling tea and cake. Uh, I think there actually was a brass band, like kind of every stereotype you could possibly have. And they had a games area, which was in a classroom, and kids could bring in their consoles. And I went in there with my dad, I think I was about seven or eight years old. And they had, there was a guy sitting there and he had a portable TV on a table and he was sitting right in front of it playing a Mega Drive. Now I'd never seen someone sit really close up to a TV. I know it's a sort of bizarre thing, but like a TV that wasn't in a living room setting positioned like that with someone seriously playing a game. That was amazing to me. So I went over to look at it and it was Streets of Rage 2. And the thing that struck me immediately was the size of the sprites. Because sort of prior to that, I'd seen kind of NES games. Uh, um, I was very lucky. My parents bought me a Game Gear at one point, uh, and I used to the kind of little fuzzy Game Gear graphics. So to see <laughs> these massive sprites walking along, um, and I remember the bit he was playing was the, the terrible bridge section, which if you've played this game, you'll remember, where the, the character kind of walks along a very narrow plane on this bridge, and there's guys on motorbikes who throw grenades, and it's really annoying. Um, yeah. But visually, that sequence is, is amazing, and the music absolutely blew my mind. It was the first Mega Drive game I'd ever seen as well. So all of these things combined just had this huge impact on me. So that was my first uh, formative experience with the game. That... Uh... I think that's probably very similar to how a lot of people experience some of their first games, um, like that first time. Um, but I remember Streets of Rage as well, for because it was really close up, wasn't it? Like the yeah. although it was like these long running sections of a street or an environment. Uh, I do get what you mean. The sprites were in, like if I think of like how Mike ha- like Hager looked like back in, like, Final Fight and stuff. He he was, like, really maybe, a, a, like, long and thin, but the the guys mm. in, like, Streets of Rage were, like, these big, burly men yeah. who, like, carried, like, big <laughs> metal rods. And just They just looked really, like, buff and big and actually, like, <laughs> muscular men, not just these yeah. weird pixels on the screen pretending to be, like, muscular men. They actually looked like incredibly muscular men who were going to kick your ass. Yeah. Right, and right. it was it's such a beautiful looking game as well yeah and obviously i kind of at that age you know 90s i, I like wrestling as well so kind of exactly what you said it's, it's these, <laughs> these incredible like kind of creatures on the screen um so that was that was sort of the when i saw it for the first time and then obviously i, I played it um quite a lot i think i rented it from blockbuster originally i kind of keep renting it over and over again and playing it um and then but i really got into the game actually uh quite a few years later at university where you kind of get into these weird sort of nostalgia things with your friends we had it on an emulator and i had one friend and we would play it two player 
um, on the keyboard, so one side of the keyboard um, for each person. And we just play through the entire game. Like we go out drinking, we come home and go, oh, Streets of Rage 2, and we just play through the whole thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, uh, because it's one of those games where, because it's mostly, once you know it, it's pretty much just memorization of where enemies appear. There's a, quite a few very bad glitches in the game, um, so it's very easy to speed run. You can put enemies into permanent hit stun very, very easily. So if, you, if you're kind of doing a bit badly, and you don't mind spending a lot of time on a level, you can just trigger infinite hit stun loops on every enemy and never take damage. <laughs> so it's quite, a re it's quite a relaxing game to play, and you can play it while very drunk and still do it successfully. Um, and I, I love that about it. There's nothing sort of more nostalgic than being able to repeat patterns, right? So you can, you can go into this world and just sort of get back into these patterns. I could probably still do the timing for that, that now. Um, and it's every level is so amazingly designed and, and so sort of vibrant and so ridiculous. There's so many sort of utterly bizarre things in that game that just always jump out to you as being hilarious. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Uh, sorry, I thought I thought you disappeared there for a second. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking back to like Streets of Rage two and playing it. I, I totally get that sort of university feeling that you said when maybe you're a poor university student and you sort of maybe rely on the insidious emulators of a PC to play yeah. nostalgic games from your childhood with your friends. Um, and this, like, I, I sort of compare Streets of Rage, I put it in the same bracket as games like Contra. Those just yeah. turn on and play and see how far you get and just in, just soak up the sort of the music the the art the the just non-stop action and uh it's excellent Th this game has appeared on final games i think three times now and i right, think that's something right. i think that says something incredible about it because it isn't there aren't games like this anymore like the the, no, the no, only game i the, can think of recently is the scott pilgrim game i don't know if you played that yeah i i played that but i didn't find that because the animation in that was so good it didn't have the sort of very obvious like short cut off frames of animation that <laughs> so it has a very different feel it's kind of got this nice flowing feel which sort of felt a bit wrong to me i mean yeah so stuff like contra is like a real game that's difficult <laughs> that yeah you have to like pay attention to mm. whereas streets of rage 2 i i it's it kind of almost isn't and it's but do you reckon that's because bad. is that because you played it so much you got incredibly good at it or no it's just it's because it's it... not it's just sort of really poorly constructed at a mechanic, <laughs> mechanical level but it, but that's why it's so good it's sort of like like trashy tv i mean obviously like i, I can't i can't sort of not talk about the music uh because it's it, it, it's probably it's probably in my top sort of three game soundtracks of all time. And Yuzo Koshiro's music is just amazing. Yeah. And it all came out of him trying to emulate sort of the sounds that were being used in dance music, but with the limitations of the, the Mega Drive's kind of YM chip, um, which is just, it's just a wonderful thing to hear. Such incredibly creative sound design, really great use of atonal stuff. Um, it's just so surprising, and I love that soundtrack, and I'll happily listen to that all day. So I need this on my on my island with me. It's uh, it's the soundtrack is absolutely one of the best things about Streets of Rage, and I remember watching a documentary. I think I've brought this up on the show before. There was a Red Bull documentary about Japanese game composers, right? And uh, Yuzo Koshiro was on it, and he was just explaining like how at the time when there was a it was a time when nobody really had any experience making music for, you know, the Mega Drive or the NES or the 
SNES back mm. in the day. Um, and they just sort of had to take their own influences and then sort of meld it to fit for a console. And yep. he was like incredibly inspired by, you know, dance music and jazz and just electronic music in general. And try he just was like, oh, just try and make, just replicate this on the Mega Drive sound trip. And that's just kind of how it happened. Um, another interesting fact about Yuzo Koshiro, though, is uh, he actually took music lessons from Joe Hisashi. I don't know, which is I, I amazing. Was going to bring that up as my amazing fact because I I interviewed him many years ago and he uh, he told me that and I was absolutely blown away by that. Just you know, one of the greatest sort of modern you know film composers. Uh, yeah, as influenced this guy who's kind of made this amazing banging techno score for a, yeah. a fighting game. It's that's I, I, I love that fact. It's, it's wonderful. It's, and you can really hear the musicianship in there, the harmonies and so on. Yeah, like are not are not easy. It's not just an, an electronic it's like a composure. There is a there is a structure and a, a composition yeah. there. It isn't just like a dance track. Um but yeah, the, <laughs> it's just such an amazing uh weird world <laughs> world um but yeah streets of raids 2 what an excellent choice as your first choice to take with you um so why don't we uh, sort of move on from that now to a sort of uh, kind of a strange choice here if i'm honest um at, to take with you to a deserted <laughs> island so why don't we listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it So, Paul, before we talk about your next choice, we have to talk about the place that you're going to be deserted, the place where you're going to be playing the eight games you've chosen today. Mm. Um, so the rule is that you get to choose because you, we, we don't want you to be uncomfortable. We want you to be sort of comfortable in a life that you could have on a deserted island or place. Um, but the place has to be from video games. Yeah. So... There's obviously not going to be any human NPCs or anyone there. So thinking of maybe a sort of calm, beautiful place from the world, just the realms of any video games um, to sort of spend the rest of your days. Is there anything that sort of immediately comes to mind when you think of it? Okay, so I've been thinking about this and uh, I'm going to pick a location from one of the games we've got coming up. Um, in the list and that location is the planet oxford from wing commander privateer now the planet oxford consists entirely of a monorail a very large sort of faux tudor library a little kind of grass 
square and a couple of other weird little buildings. There don't really seem to be any people there apart from the dude you talked to in the ridiculous Wing Commander story, but obviously he wouldn't be there. So what we've got <laughs> basically is, is kind of a sort of early 90s parody idea of Oxford, which is a place I know very well and grew up in, but in space uh, with a kind of amazing infinite library. Uh, and I like libraries. If, if anything, I don't get to spend enough time in libraries my current job so uh, i think i'd be very happy there for for all eternity i think that's a good choice uh, you know getting around going to the library because sometimes you need a break from video games as great as street of rage 2 exactly. is you know yep. sometimes you just need to take a break and read some books as well although that's right whatever books are in there now because well wing commander privateer it was 1993 so yep. it's gonna be books that they could think of to put in the library back then so <laughs> i'm not quite sure what kind of books you're gonna have in there um, i think but, there'd be lots of lots of interesting history of the you know the kilrathi war and yeah, all of that that i could that i could maybe. read up on um <laughs> you know i think there's probably a lot there's a lot going on in the wing commander universe i think it'd be it'd be quite interesting um yeah okay that's that's a good choice so the planet oxford uh is definitely the place we're going to send you then. And the next game that you're going to be playing there is a very interesting choice. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this one. Um, it's developed by Troika Games and published by Activision. It was a sort of PC title that released back in 2004. It was sort of an action role-playing game, if I remember rightly. I didn't play too much of it. Yep. But it could be played in like first or third person, very similar mm. to like uh, Fallout or Skyrim. Um, and it's Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. Paul, yes. why this? Why is the second game <laughs> that is going to be on Planet Oxford uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines? Okay, so this is. Uh, I think I've maybe overthought this one, but we'll we'll, we'll go with it. <laughs> so this was my slot for. I needed an open world RPG because you've got to have something like that. You know, for, for all eternity, you've got to have a, a silly open world RPG to mess around in. Um, and I thought about Deus Ex, but I've replayed Deus Ex probably more than I've replayed any other game. And, and I think I think the memories of Deus Ex are now a bit better than the the actual game is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna leave myself with the memories. Um, I I didn't want to take a Bethesda game because every time I play those games, I kind of get really excited at the start, and then I get really bored with the the leveling and the kind of grindiness of them, the repetitiveness of them. So I didn't want to take one of those. Okay. Um, and then I remembered Bloodlines, which is a game that I've tried to play about five times and never reached the end of. Um, the end is really, really terrible. So I, I stipulated in my request <laughs> to take this game with me that I can take uh, fan patches uh, to fix the terrible bugs and fix the terrible end game. Okay. But there's so much. Yeah. There's so much about this game that's incredible. Um, I love the uh, the Vampire the Masquerade sort of lore. I, I have I have all of the um, source books, the RPG. I just love the way that it's so earnest and yet so ridiculous at the same time. Um, everything's kind of crafted to be this really interesting imaginative space, you know, to, to create sort of RPGs in, really. Um, so I love all of the silly lore. Um, and this game, it was so ambitious, it didn't quite hit everything, but there's nothing like the feeling of kind of walking around these, these environments, um, feeling like you're a kind of ridiculous overly hyped up gothic vampire and doing gothic vampire things there's loads <laughs> of weird bugs and side quests and little weird things to discover in the game so i think i'd be able to kind of play it for a long time 
there's the different bizarre character classes um like the malkavian clan you can play as them and, and all of their dialogue options are completely bizarre and don't make any sense and they can't understand normal language so you have to play the game um and sort of figure out what everything means i feel like there's a lot of scope in this game that i haven't discovered and that's why i want to take it with me it is a game that did have sort of a grandiose scope because if i remember it took place in like multiple different Areas like it took in like yep. Santa Monica, Hollywood, Los Angeles, and like Chinatown, and they were all sort of separate areas that were completely fleshed out. Um, mm. You know, quite similar to like GTA in a way, but maybe on a bit of a smaller scale. Um, but I remember at the time this game reviewed really well. Yeah, and uh, it, I remember this game like nines and tens across the board. Um, but it always felt a little weird because they obviously went for the the not sort of Nosferatu type vampire but definitely the kind of sexy Buffy type vampire theme right I right. think that sort of maybe didn't did it a little bit of a disservice to what the game is actually like um, I think if you weren't if you weren't already familiar with the the sort of role-playing stuff trying to take in all of that lore and they really cram it in in the game you know it has this intro sequence which is just full of sort of silly terminology that you probably don't understand if you if you've not encountered it before i think it's too much for, for someone coming in anew but if you do know that world um and the setting i think it's just tremendously exciting to have such a a kind of in-depth game set in the world and being able to go walk around and explore the world in a kind of real sense was exciting um at the time it was the second one wasn't it because there was redemption yes. before it as well yeah? did you play redemption no, I'm under the impression it's a bit more sort of combat-based. It's a bit more of a sort of turn-based combat thing. That may be completely wrong, but it, but it certainly didn't have the, the... The main reason that I like this game is, is the atmosphere and the incredible quests that have sort of bizarre twists in them. One of the first um, quests you do is, is a haunted house um, type mission. And the haunted house is so brilliant because it's sort of knowingly funny and actually genuinely a bit disturbing at times. Um, it's, re it's a really well... Like, you walk up to the front door and a light bulb explodes in a jump scare, like, before you even start the mission. So it kind of signals, you know, oh, it's going to be one of these missions. And it really, really plays with a lot of those ideas. It's very sophisticated, very clever level design just in that one mission. And there's a lot of other things like that sort of through the game that are just little surprises. It's just it's a very witty game, um, I think, underneath all of the sort of po-faced silly vampireness. Excellent. So looking at your list then, uh, we sort of delve back and forth between like PC, console, PC, and then a lot <laughs> of it is built upon uh, PC games. Um, was playing, because that period between maybe like 98 to like 2006, like there were so many PC RPGs. Um, mm. Did you sort of dive it? Is RPGs like a big genre for you? Were you trying to like soak up all the RPGs you could at that time? I'm I'm a very eclectic gamer. I tend to just go for so that the main theme I think if there is one on the list is sort of worlds that are exciting to go and visit. That's the thing that I really get from a lot of games. It's the atmosphere of being immersed within someone else's story, within someone else's world. So RPGs do that quite well, but I never played sort of traditional RPGs. Um I I mean, I've I played sort of, so I started with Bethesda games with Daggerfall um, and then um, for some reason skipped Morrowind, uh, which kind of, I think it just occurred in a, a period when I wasn't playing games as much. Yeah, And okay. I've played sort of ev everything since. So I, I think those are kind of the RPGs that I that I went for most. 
Um, yeah, no, it, it's the world building that I like, um, the, the sort of transporting nature of certain games. So maybe like the environments are a lot more important than the, the story mm. or the characters. Sure, and I got the same kind of thing from games like Dungeon Keeper, um, where it really makes you feel like you're doing the thing is, is important to me. So you, you feel like a kind of evil dungeon overlord in that game, very much yeah. so. Um, and, and so that's what I like. And, and a lot of those PC games were really geared around those kind of fantasies um, for me. So that era was very productive. And I think um, when developers were just kind of figuring out what an open world is uh, and what an open world could be was way more interesting than than now when you have these very defined, you know, you have your Bethesda open world, you have your Ubisoft open world, you have your Rockstar open world, and you, you know what each of those things are irrespective yeah. of setting. And I, I really hate that. I, I love when... Um, when there's experimental stuff happening in open world, which is why I've picked Bloodlines, because it was a very experimental game, so it fails very badly at certain points, but it, it also hits highs that I don't think have been hit since. Like, the experimentation is there, whereas now, I can kind of see what you mean, because it's it's weird, you'll play like, a, like an Ubisoft game, and then you'll try and do something that you're able to do in something else and then mm. and the game just won't allow you because that's not how they've built that open world and then it'll be like well i can do this in gta this is really weird and off-putting yeah. uh, and then you go play a game like the witcher which kind of spoils other open world games because you can right. do a lot of things yeah and it's kind of weird because the open world genre sort of then goes back and forth on playing with the player's expectations and limits it like mm inadvertently doing so not on purpose but just the the weird way and there's no kind of experimentations like people realize you could you know have a game world on an island and then the explanation for you not being able to go to the end of the horizon is that you're on an island and just those kind of limitations are kind of just with almost every open world game these days yeah, and commercial pressure is so great. You know, you, you can't say, hey, give me the budget that you would have for, you know, Far Cry 4 and I'm going to make an experimental yeah. game um, set on a cruise liner. Like, it, it's just not going to happen. So you don't have that because, yes, as you say, the expectations are set. Um, the money's going to go in a certain direction. Development's going to go in a certain direction. And, th- and that is kind of creatively very limiting. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's like obviously last week Skyrim ha- came out, um, mm. remastered, and I I got it and I picked it up and I started playing and then I realized sort of how much things have progressed since even as you said, like 2011 um, yeah. feels like 30 years ago maybe mm. for PC gamers. And when I play Skyrim, I definitely feel the age. Um, yeah. But the world, on the other hand. The world, I'm really just excited to be back in that world. Sort of, I wasn't the biggest fan of Skyrim, but I felt like the world and the way it presented itself was a lot better than what the actual game was. And it's kind of weird that open world games can carry on developing their complex systems and the way NPCs react with each other, or you have various random quests that can sort of maybe naturally appear as technology goes on but the world is always going to sort of be very the same like skyrim is always going to be this huge sprawling snowy map that Mm. does immerse you it doesn't matter how maybe old the game mechanics are feeling um it definitely like the world can be on par with even games now and i think i sort of understand what you're trying to say about the world being really important to those types of games 
Well, that's right. I mean, that, that's why I want to visit these places, you know, and, and, and the kind of game mechanics, there's always going to be problems with any set of game mechanics that's applied across that broader a, a scope and that broader a range of things that the player is able to do. I mean, it, it, I, I always feel sad that I missed out Morrowind and it, it I believe it is sort of playable now, but I, I, I kind of feel like if I go to that now, it's going to seem so old mechanically. But Morrowind, from what I what I know about it, has by far the most interesting setting of any of those games. Um, the setting in Oblivion was really weird and kind of oppressive, um, having these kind of rifts in the world everywhere and this sort of demonic influence coming into the world. Whereas in Skyrim... Um, they've integrated that kind of exterior threat with the world. So the dragons, although they're sort of almost like extra diegetic things that kind of land in the world, they feel a bit more part of it. So I always liked that about Skyrim. You didn't feel like, you, you know, it was easier to ignore the main quest. Basically, it's kind of what it boils down yeah. to. There aren't these great gashes in reality everywhere that you really should get on with <laughs> fixing. You know? There um, aren't these just things that keep... They're almost like really annoying LinkedIn notification emails <laughs> it just keep popping up and it, you just keep trying to ignore them keep trying to ignore them but uh you have to I, I deal would, with it i would love point. it if uh if a daedric lord popped out and offered you seo services um, <laughs> that would really sum up that game for me <laughs> you you have some mighty fine daedric armor looking there how about you tweet about it or you send uh, yeah. a send a message about it <laughs> exactly but it is weird. Like with Skyrim, I'm trying at the moment to stick with the main quest. I'm trying to, to get that out of the way before I sort of mess around. But something will happen. Like, I, I, <laughs> talking about game mechanics again, I, I saw a guard and he was like running towards something. Mm. And I was like, whoa, something something must be happening. So I followed him. And I just followed him for 10 minutes. And he just kept running. And he, he got like halfway across the map and then just stopped and disappeared. So... <laughs> <laughs> nothing no no script was running or anything and he wasn't going to a game script that was happening or an event or anything he was just running <laughs> there, there's still I, the bugs uh, the bugs and so on really also make that game for me just just that you can find weird stuff happening for no reason also i saw someone tweeted the other day that characters do also run to some of their quest locations so there's a boy who gets kidnapped and they found him running out of the city and he was actually running to be kidnapped so that the quest could start. <laughs> and there's just stuff like that all the time. <laughs> and you just think about how many patches this game has had. How many you they just... cannot ever tame this game. It's going to rebel whatever they I do. wouldn't I wouldn't even want to imagine what the code for that game looks like. It's just like spaghetti. Just it it's all entangled now. It's a total disaster. It, I mean yeah. just ridiculous. I could just imagine the boy like looking at his watch and he's like, Oh shit, I'm late for my own kidnapping. <laughs> oh <right>. shit. <laughs> That's, that's the harsh world of, of Tamriel. Uh, uh, well, world. I think we're going to move on now, and we're going to go back in time a little bit as well, but to a series that sort of defined a certain genre, um, and also sort of space games in general. Um, so why don't we listen to some music from this next game, and let's dive straight into it.
The next game that you've chosen, Paul, is a game developed by Origin Systems, uh, and it was published by EA. I think it was one of the first games they published. Um, it released back in 1993 for the uh, sort of DOS systems, and it, it sort of had a pseudo 3D world um, that had like raster graphics. Um, it's Wing Commander Privateer. Paul, I have yes. never played this game, so please tell me why. So this it is, deserves being on this list. This is probably like I, I am the champion of this game. Very few people have played it. Um, I think it's one of the best open world games ever made. Um, it's probably uh, it, it's always difficult to, to kind of call the favorite game. It may be my favorite game of all time. Um, OK, so, OK. So the thing with this game was I, I was a big fan of the first Wing Commander game, which is just a mission based. It's Top Gun in space. Um, it's a space flight simulator <laughs> as you said it has these sprite scaling kind of fake 3d um, which really adds a lot of charm to the game so all the stuff in the foreground is pixel art so you're kind of in a 3d pixel art world which i always thought was amazingly compelling so exciting to be able to go and sort of explore one of these worlds um so that was what what wing commander one was like linear missions and this stupid story about fighting evil space cats so um you know you have goodies and baddies uh you you shoot the baddies and they explode great very very nuanced narrative so i I was in um i think it was virgin megastore one of those fairly ancient uh retail game stores and i'd never heard of this game and i picked up the box and i think it says something like be anything you want to be on the box and it's a wing commander game i thought oh that's interesting and then i realized that in this game you can go anywhere you want you can go to all of these different planets you don't have to wait for the stupid big carrier ship to stay take you places which you did in wing commander one you just go there and you're behind the front lines of this giant war that's happening which is a very exciting setting and not anything i'd seen in a game before in games you were always like the hero pilot on the front lines and here you're just like some guy who's trying to make money in this universe um kind of on your own and you just start with this rubbish ship this absolutely terrible ship called a tarsus um and the ui for the ship is amazing it fills the screen there's all these kind of broken looking monitors everywhere there's a computer yeah Yeah. it was like a cockpit wasn't it it was like right right. yeah okay yeah uh in the original wing commander you could see your own hand like on a joystick in the foreground of the screen which i thought was amazing but this game had a had a computer keyboard in the cockpit uh, and, and you fly around and you can do most of the stuff you do in a modern open world game you can do in this game you can trade um, there's sort of basically side missions to do although they kind of come through mission computers so you don't get that many NPCs in the game um, and the main storyline it's actually very possible to completely miss it and just sort of not really know it's there which I think is incredible you have to go to a specific bar on a specific planet and talk to a shady guy and he tells you to do a mission and then you're off on the main quest line um, and in this world you encounter the the Kirathi so the baddies from um, Wing Commander 1 if they sort of strayed you know out of the uh, the theater of war there's pirates there's a crazy religious cult um, there's all kinds of stuff that happens there's dynamic randomly generated encounters different factions fight each other um, it's absolutely incredible. It's an incredible world. Um, and it's very, very crafted. A lot of open world games now have sort of randomly generated elements or lots of kind of carbon copy elements. And this really created a believable sort of um, segment of the galaxy that you could travel around in. It's a totally unique experience. It's way more human than Elite, uh, which is just a sort of cold kind of spreadsheety numbers space game. Um, it's quite 
weird and, and funny. Uh, and the combat mechanics are amazing because they're just the combat mechanics from Wing Commander. So I absolutely love this game and I want to play it forever. So when did you originally play this game? Because if you were playing, like, if Streets of Rage was kind of new to you and impressing you back mm. in, like, 1994 or 1992, yeah. whatever it was, when did you come across Wing Commander Privateer? Because it was a spin-off of Wing Commander yeah. The, like the main series um was it like at the time it came out or was it like a few years when you got into maybe more pc gaming stuff yeah. so um so yeah wing commander priority was based on i believe the wing commander 2 engine um and kind of came out sort of a bit separately from those games and it was a few years later so i picked it up in a double pack with strike commander which was wing commander with planes so actually just top gun um which is another chris <laughs> roberts game um so yeah i found this double pack it was on a cd so it was um the, with the speech pack it was a kind of re-released version and that's just like as a package that was an amazing thing to find in a shop not having heard of either of those games um and i played strike commander a lot as well um really great game that one doesn't stand up to uh to the test of time now the graphics are too bad um and it, it runs really poorly on DOSBox. um so it's it's pretty hard to make that work Privateer is still very playable now um, if you could ignore the big sort of pixels of ships when you get too close to them. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a, it was a few years later when I when I kind of moved on to mostly PC gaming. Um, but but it was such a such a profound experience to be able to go and explore this world that you'd only seen on on rails before, really. So what do you sort of think about games now then like space games such as elite dangerous and um star citizen and just these sort of now incredibly mm. huge games these these basically galactic spanning titles that you could have millions of planets and just copious amounts of stuff going on um are you interested or is it a genre that sort of maybe lost what made it special back in the 90s i think there's there's never been a game like privateer and i i very doubt very much doubt there'll ever be anything else like it because as i said it was it was based around injecting that world with personality um and and every sort of every system making sense and every every planet having something weird about it um elite dangerous is great i i played it a little bit um it's one of those games that i feel needs a billion hours worth of time to get anything out of it um it is more spreadsheety as I said, sort of like the original Elite, uh, it's a bit more kind of on the Eve spectrum of like watching numbers go up, which is fine. And, and But it's just a very different type of game. It's a very different mood. Um, Star Citizen is so insane that I, I just have no idea what... I mean, it's a bit like it's a bit like your favourite movie director getting sent into space and put in a giant robot suit and then allowed to create planets it's i just have no idea what that's going to be like like even though i liked chris roberts older games um i i, I think he's a bit crazy <laughs> uh, <laughs> and i think that's very adequately demonstrated by what he did with some of the later wing commander games um i i think he's a little bit unhinged which is good in a game designer but that means i have no idea whether i'll like anything to do but with it, star citizen or even if star citizen will ever be a finished product i just i know but that's the thing is like it's starting to go on a bit too long now that like feature creep is sort of kicking in a bit too much in there trying to maybe put in too much that i even if players even if it is a finished product and it's excellent maybe it'll put off too many players with so many complex systems and so many different things to do right um 
compared to like privateer where you know you got your ship you then went off and you found things to do and you explored uh hmm. and finding all these unique characters and that kind of thing um it just like overloading is being like what do you want to do do you want to trade do you want to combat do you want to walk around do you want to just and just firing so many things at you every time i i look at demos of that game i'm incredibly impressed but i'm just like how how are you ever meant to get anywhere with right. all this stuff like it yeah, just seems yeah. like no one will ever get the most out of it like the- they want players to the potential to do anything, I think, is is this really weird sort of game design holy grail. And No Man's Sky is the obvious sort of other example of that where I think No Man's Sky, I really, really enjoyed playing it. I, I played it for about 12 hours, 11, 12 hours total. And then I kind of hit the limits of what I was interested in that game. I'm excited for when they add more stuff. But that had a feeling of being a game about exploring generative planets that suddenly got hijacked by this compulsion to add other stuff to that game. Um, yeah. So it, it, it feels like a big compromise to me. I think it's closer to Privateer than almost anything I've played. You know, if you get into a, a good system in that game with a couple of interesting planets and the space station, then it feels slightly Privateer-ish, but not enough interesting stuff happens to, to really sort of sate that desire for me. Um, but I really like that because it was an, an original approach to one of these space, space games. Um, it had a very unusual design basis. Uh, so so I really sort of appreciated that game. But nothing has ever come close to this. I don't want these massive infinite worlds with infinite possibilities. I want smaller worlds with lots of character that are fun to visit. And that's really out of fashion. Excellent. Well, sticking with the space theme then, I think we should move on to your next game then, uh, which I, as a strategy game developer, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this next game um from i'm pretty much one of the top developers around now um so let's listen to some music from this next game and let's talk about it game that you're going to be taking with you paul is a strategy real-time strategy uh game from one of the most uh famous of strategy series i think and uh, one of the biggest esports for a long time uh, developed by blizzard entertainment and released back in july of 2010 it's the hugely successful and incredibly popular starcraft 2 wings of liberty paul yes. as a strategy developer as someone who has made strategy games and is currently working on one, is StarCraft Two sort of an inspiration or is it just sort of like 
wow, this game is great. I just really enjoy it. <laughs> so when Ian sort of started making Frozen Synapse, his main inspiration was Laser Squad Nemesis, so that kind of lineage of XCOM games. Um, and the idea with Frozen Synapse was that you would be put into an interesting situation straight away, randomly generated situation, and you'd have yeah. to do the interesting tactical stuff straight away. And when we were making it, we were really sort of anti-RTS. I think I put in a press release some disparaging comment about like, oh, there's no build orders in this game or something like that. Um, so we really, <laughs> we really kind of set ourselves up as almost the anti-StarCraft game. Um, so I had this funny, so I played StarCraft 1 and that was fine. And I, I played a bit of multiplayer and I just found it really hectic and annoying and I didn't like it. Um, so I came from that and then, then through this sort of anti-RTS stance, and then in, it was in 2010, I think it was sort of probably like October or November 2010, um, Tom Francis, the uh, journalist and now game developer, tweeted uh, a clip of Tasteless and Artosis, the two English language StarCraft II commentators, commentating a match in Korea and just going crazy over someone blowing up some banelings. Um, and, <laughs> and one of them shouted something like, it's like mushy peas. Uh, and I saw that and I just thought that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Two guys doing basically US sports style commentary for a video game on a tiny desk in a corner of a massive Korean TV studio, just going <laughs> mental, just going crazy over this game. And I thought, what is this? How can you take StarCraft, which I, I kind of thought of this quite cerebral, boring game. And how can you do this? So I started watching it. And I, I didn't understand anything they were saying, um, but I watched more and more and more. And it was towards the end of Frozen Synapse's development where everyone was starting to go a bit crazy anyway. So I would just have this on while working all day. I'd watch hours of StarCraft II matches. Um, and then oh. I, started, I started wanting to play. So I got into it, the first game I've ever got into through watching. That's, a, that's really strange, because obviously StarCraft was uh, quite an established franchise already. Mm. Um, for you to get into it through the esports thing, because that doesn't seem so strange now. A, yep. a lot of people, I think, get into like League of Legends or Dota mm. due to watching it, and obviously Street Fighter and stuff as uh, as well. Um, but StarCraft 2010, this is you know quite this is six years ago. Esports in Korea has always been popular, but was still not quite. Uh, as popular as it is now. Yeah. Um, but to have gotten into that game because of esports is really interesting. It, it, it's just not anything I expected to happen. I, I think at that point I was working so hard that I needed some outlet for my brain to just go and be in another place other than work. We were doing a lot of testing. You know, there were only... I can't remember if we had all of our current employees then but, but there were either three or four of us so it, it was a a lot of testing and that that does funny things to your brain very intensive bug testing really really does funny things to your brain and i just needed yeah. an outlet and it was I, I what i didn't understand was the strategic depth of the game and that's what watching it gave to me so you have you basically have the level of skill that's kind of akin to a very high level musician so they're replicating these things that, that are kind of beautiful elegant structures these build orders but then they have to improvise and you get to see some of the most brilliant strategic thinking um, on the spur of the moment. So you have to be very kind of rigid and do these hundreds of hours of practice, but also be very adaptable. And not only that, you're doing it to beat another human. 
So you're trying to take into account all these psychological factors, expectations, how to survive, you know. And the early days of StarCraft II, the build orders were really insane. You got people doing all-ins, kind of, there was a famous uh, pro gamer called Bit by Bit Prime who would just select all of his units very near the start of the game and just, just attack with them. And he got quite far doing that because it was always unexpected somehow, even though he did it every time. <laughs> I think that, that, that kind of stuff made me go, what, what is this? Like, how is there this much depth um, to the game? And that really set me up to start playing it. And when I started playing it, it's, it's, it was the first game that made me angry. Uh, multiplayer game. I was an only child, so I, I didn't grow up with that kind of sibling rivalry thing that a lot of people who get into uh, multiplayer games. Have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so this game. I mean, I I was like punching my keyboard, and I'd never done that before. Um, when I lost to somebody, I knew I was better than them, and they did something <laughs> stupid that you shouldn't do, and that made me angry. It's like they're they're playing the game in the wrong way, and suddenly I understood all these weird behaviors that people do, like like saying their opponent is playing the game in the wrong way. I suddenly knew what that was. So I had all of these these multiplayer experiences for the first time at that point in my life. I could sort of get where you're coming from. Going back to something you said a minute ago about you were bug testing and you just sort of, it may be like a palate cleanser. Yeah. Because I remember distinctly when I was working QA on GTA Five, obviously day in, day out, 12 hours a day, working on this big triple a open world release very much like a lot of games now other you see games in a weird way when you yes. do that um <laughs> and it's very hard to sort of maybe get enthusiastic especially if you play you know a game like gta all day and you go home and then what's the latest release oh it's like assassin's creed or <laughs> it's like far cry 2 or you just you don't want to play those games so i got really into league of legends mm. and even to this day I still love that game. I don't play it as much, and I actually probably watch esports League of Legends more than I play the game. I'm, I'm really into that. Um, but that type of game that and and the the whole sort of sport orientated idea around it just made it feel not like a game. Like I wasn't playing a video game. I was right. playing like a like a team sport with my friends, and it sort of took my brain away from all the weird things you have as a bug tester where you can't see past all the glitches or like if something's wrong in a game, it drives you crazy. Um, so I can sort of understand what you mean about looking to Starcraft and the, the esports side as something different to what you're doing day in, day out. Yeah. The other thing that, that really fascinated me about it was the culture, you know, that to be able to compete in this game at that level you had to spend minimum 12 hours a day practicing. And I've always been bad at practicing things. Um, when I was learning to play the piano, I was terrible with lessons. I, I just, I really didn't do my practice. But I'd sit at the piano and play for hours and hours and hours on my own, improvising stuff, but practicing scales and so on. I was, I was always terrible at that, about that. So when I saw, like the first time I saw a documentary about a Korean pro gaming house, and I saw what those guys do, I, I just thought, this is insane. Like how how dedicated it's possible to be to this thing, which is uh, people had this perception that it was somehow, you know, you would be a celebrity in Korea if you played StarCraft just because a few StarCraft 1 pro gamers were famous. But actually it was considered like a really weird minor sport that nobody would really want to go into. And socially yeah. it was not accepted. And yet there were no. these kids who were just given their life to this whole thing and had to convince their entire family that this was worthwhile. And normally the normal way of doing that is to make money from something. Uh, 
and many of them didn't. So the kind of heroism of the these kids who were doing that really appealed to me as well. It just sort of showed me a different approach to life, kind of other than you know the one I'd taken, which was always to kind of find things that I thought were easy <laughs> that I enjoyed, and then do those things. Um, it, it's just a totally different world. So what about skipping forward now to 2016? Um, Starcraft has sort of died down a little bit. We obviously saw the the last expansion, which was Legacy of the Void, what was mm. it, last year. Yeah. Um, and even in Korea, uh, of esports has sort of become dominated um, by League of Legends and Dota. Um, so even in Korea, we've seen StarCraft has sort of maybe been pulled a little bit back from TV stations and stuff. Mm. Um, are you still into it are you still playing it or uh, do you have like a new esport that you watch or uh digging right now so i um i did my my plane did kind of fall off i had this goal of getting to platinum league um which i thought was sort of the only attainable league with the amount of time i had available to play and i managed to do that after <laughs> really kind of quite a lot of effort so I'm, I'm not a natural starcraft player but i did get to that point um and then yeah then the game kind of sort of um uh, ossified a bit uh, you, you got that kind of it, it was the beginning of the swarm host kind of era so you'd see a lot of incredibly long tvz's if you were watching the game um and blizzard really took it in a kind of weirdly defensive direction um that i didn't like so I, my, both my watching and my playing sort of tailed off um so i don't play much anymore i uh, the, the time investment is so huge for a game like that i do yeah. occasionally and i do i do watch occasionally but as you say the esports has kind of moved on now it's gone from the two guys in korea shouting in the corner of a studio to being quite sort of big glitzy productions which i like less i kind of liked the weird slightly subversive atmosphere you know you had to download two, the gom <laughs> two TV guys on a cardboard to, box to, right yeah i like i always <laughs> like things like that i like underdog broadcasting things for some reason it's just something that really appeals to me and so the kind of mlg-ish sort of era was less interesting um and then ev yeah everything kind of went went towards dota and, and league of legends which which appealed to me um quite a lot less so yeah i mean when i play multiplayer games now it's mostly kind of rocket league um things like that are kind of easier to dip into but the reason i want to take starcraft 2 with me to the planet oxford is that i would love to have like a really long period of time to dedicate to the game I know people who are kind of Masters League players. I've always been envious of them. I'd like to understand the game to that level um, and put in the practice um, to, to get there. And I think with infinite time on my hands, I could I could really do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you can make your own Korean gaming house with yourself <laughs> on planet... <laughs> with no Koreans on planet Oxford and mm. uh, become a sort yeah. of master. You can definitely get to the highest... <laughs> of the ladder you make it sound really <laughs> depressing thanks for that you've, you've ruined my dreams <laughs> i think it's okay with starcraft because it's all about you you don't have to rely on right, other right. teammates and yep. uh, in uh, like you have to in like mobas and stuff like that and fight uh, other things like that so mm. no i think it's an excellent choice for a deserted island and it it's appeared before on the show and i i, I can I can understand why these games would be incredibly appealing, but it's really cool to hear that you got into it through like an like an almost alternative means. Like esports is still sort of this although it's pretty huge now, it's still the sort of this fresh thing that people were sort of unsure about for a long time. So, that's, I think that I find that really interesting. Cool. Well, I think we should maybe get on to the next game now, which also 
can be considered quite a huge esport. Um, not in the same game as MOBAs or maybe not even StarCraft, but the hardcore, incredible scene that keeps fighting games and the like going uh, are just amazing. And for anyone who's ever watched EVO, you understand what I mean. So we're going to move on to the next game now, which is at the very center of communities such as that. Uh, so let's listen to some excellent music from this next game and let's dive straight into it. So the next game on your list, Paul, is a fighting game, as I previously mentioned. This one is developed by Capcom and Dimps, uh, published as well by Capcom and produced by the absolutely lovely uh, Yoshinoro Ono, uh, released earlier this year back in February 2016 in not the greatest of states and was heavily criticized because of it, but since then has sort of built up and up and has become maybe the the feature full game that people expected Um a few months later, it's the brand new iteration of the Street Fighter series, Street Fighter V. Paul, please tell me why you are taking Street Fighter V and not Super Smash Bros. <laughs> 4, as we discussed previously. Right, yes. <laughs> yes in okay. our emails. <laughs> yeah, so so this was this was probably the hardest decision. I, I, I didn't feel like I wanted to take a range of games, so I, I only have one slot for a fighting game. I played a lot of Smash 4. Um, it's been the fighting game I've played most. I I'm not uh, I'm not very good at it, sort of on on the global scale. But I kind of feel like I've almost maxed out what I want to do in that game. I'm getting to the point where I'm practicing things that I don't really enjoy practicing. There's a lot of elements of the game that frustrate me, and they kind of come to the fore. Whereas Street Fighter Five, I barely know anything about it. I've I've played a little bit. Um, my friend uh, Alex Darby, who's working with us on Tokyo 42, is pretty good, and he's been training me a bit. And I just feel like there's more to kind of learn in that game um, that's the kind of learning that I enjoy. There's, uh, I'm at the fun stage of learning where kind of every new thing you do really has a big benefit when you play online or you play other people. Um, weirdly, another reason that, that made me want to take that over Smash is that I hate the controls for Smash. I hate them. I hate the way the Wii U controller feels. I don't like the GameCube controller. I've tried oh, both. Oh, I blasphemy. Hate, I hate it. Blasphemy. I, I, it's, it's, a horrible, it's a horrible controller. It feels, oh, no. it feels horrible. <laughs> Everyone, if you want, go and play Smash somewhere, they all want to 
make you use it and I don't know how to use it very well. I hate it. Whereas you, Street- you can <laughs> happily come you can happily come around to my house and use the Wii U controller, whatever controller you want, All because right. Right. the GameCube controller is mine. <laughs> That's totally fine, man. I mean you, you can keep it. It's a disgusting controller. That's really um, weird because the GameCube <laughs> controller sort of from what I've experienced from people I've spoken to and even sort of other people in the games industry, it's not is not something that's contested. I think the majority are very positive about that controller um, compared to we sort of have some discussion about maybe the Xbox One controller uh, or hmm. other controllers, so the Wii U gamepad, for example. Um, but that's really interesting that you, you don't like it. <laughs> it just feels weird. I, I don't like it. Um, <laughs> so with Street Fighter, obviously, you know, you can have a massive arcade stick. And I've, I've never played um, with one before. Uh, and then I went to uh, this friend uh, Alex's house and he... He had one, and I just thought this is great. Like you can, you can feel every input. You know, the, the stick will click into position for every direction. You really know when you've input something correctly or incorrectly. You can feel it, um, and I really, really like that. I like how direct it was. Um, and in Street Fighter, you have these interesting kind of you have sequence learning and timing, and you do in in Smash to some extent. But with Smash, Smash, it really feels like as soon as you want to do anything interesting, you're breaking the game in some way. You're sort of pushing things beyond where the the basic level of the game can account for them and in street fighter it now it feels like combos um and canceling and lots of things are kind of integrated with the game it feels like those systems are sort of available to you um and there's nice things in 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 five like the target combos which are kind of easy to do for beginners um and so on and the special moves sort of being non-ridiculous that I that I really like philosophically. So I want to spend a lot more time getting to know that game. Um, and I, I have a feeling that eventually I may like it more than I like Smash. But um, but who knows? It, it's weird because the, <laughs> I understand why this was the hardest choice. Smash Four is one of my has become <laughs> one of my favorite games ever. Yeah. I yeah. I'm a huge fan of Smash Brothers anyway, and I think I feel like Smash Four is the perfect version of that game. Obviously, a lot of people like Melee, mm. um, so I probably people ask me a lot about when I'm going to tell them my eight, um, but I think a solid bet would be that I would put Smash Four on it. But recently, I have gotten into Street Fighter Five. Not as much as I did Street Fighter 4, which is kind of like my university year summed up in one word. Right. Um, right. I played thousands of hours of Street Fighter 4 and I got into the whole arcade stick scene and I, I built my own custom arcade sticks and I enjoyed that so much. But Street Fighter 5 is is weird. I, I sort of understand what you mean. They've sort of come around to combos being yeah a part of it. Whereas before they they sort of try to step away it was all about maybe the neutral game sort of your positioning and and almost strategic compared to games like Tekken or Soul Calibur um, but now they're kind of just embracing it and I, it feels to me a bit more like another Capcom game which was Marvel versus Capcom mm. not to the extreme extent that that game where you could just press three buttons and you would do an a two-hour combo yeah. um but definitely the way it all links together now. It's a lot easier to link combos together, whereas in Street Fighter 4, it was a lot harder. You had to do, like, yep. FADC cancels and uh, just all that sort of nonsense. It feels like with this game, Capcom would have embraced that, and then being the good fighting game developers that they are, they've made a really good system, like a really good system where combos feel nice, they feel good. Um, they're not 
difficult to learn, but to really get the most out of them and tweak them and master them is still as difficult as it's always been. Um, but I, I think I need to play more of it to sort of yeah to decide whether it would it would <laughs> take over Smash Four as the game I the fighting game I would take with me. One, um, of, th- one of the other things is that Street Fighter is way more accommodating to players than Smash is. Like the the online stuff for Smash is terrible. It's awful. I will agree. It's bad. awful. Yeah. So you can't even play on stages with platforms easily. You know, all that yeah. stuff. It's just I hate every time I kind of fire that up, I'm like, oh, I have to put up with this. It's weird because it's 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 both simultaneously the best multiplayer game. Yes. Um but requires circumstances in which no one in this modern age does anymore, which is going round to people's houses right. uh, and playing games. Uh, to the other, which is like it's one of the worst multiplayer games because you can't do the simple thing that everyone could do in the modern age, which is play online. Hmm. You can't play online consistently because the yeah. online netcode is really bad. So yeah, compared it, it, to games terrible. like Street Fighter, you're right. It is not as accessible. Mm. And also you have that nice training mode, you know, in Street Fighter, you can set everything up properly and you have a bit of that in Smash, but it's just not as fully featured and it, it doesn't have the the great thing where you can jump in there when you're waiting for a game online. So I feel like my I want to keep my frustration to a minimum for, for all eternity. Uh, and if I'm going to be putting a lot of time into a fighting game, I, I want I want all these nice accommodations. It's, it's like getting the executive lounge. <laughs> you know, I, I want the executive lounge. So uh so I'm going to go for that. But I mean, even just talking about this makes me go, oh, I should probably play Smash more because I started to get to a point with it where I started to genuinely feel like I was I was getting quite a lot better. Um, one of the other factors for me is that Smash is quite hard to watch um, as an esports. So when you're kind of watching to learn new things, I mean, obviously there's kind of great highlights like, you know, Nairo beating Zero and stuff like that. Um, yeah. It's just amazing to watch. Um, I'm a Zero Suit Summers player, so I'm completely in awe of, of Nairo and, and you know, <laughs> he's, he's a god to me. Incredible, incredible player. Um, so there's that, but then uh, if you watch Street Fighter, you can see very, very readily everything that these pros are doing a lot of the time you know it's 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 a lot more of a, a readable game um mm. i was at pax and i got to see um ricky ortiz play and just some of the stuff uh that, that was kind of going on in in those matches was just just amazing uh the, the kind of fluidity and just virtuoso play that you can see and, and it's all there on the screen to see unlike marvel which is just a kind of blur of different flashing colors um, yeah, just just <laughs> it, it's like thirty seconds and the match is over it's after one combo. Unbelievable uh, game. Uh, yeah, so so I, I want to. You have to watch good players to pick stuff up, and I, I'd rather watch Street Fighter at this point than Smash. I can see what you mean. I totally agree that Street Fighter is definitely a lot easier to watch. Smash Four, however, is a lot easier to watch than Melee, which yes. I still find, even as someone who is incredibly experienced with fighting <laughs> games and esports fighting games melee is still like it's it's fantastic how those guys react it's like basically right, marvel right. but without all the blurs yeah. um <laughs> but i think smash Four is a lot easier to sort of understand i think once you sort of know the nuances of smash Four mm. as a player you can get to grips with why those players are good sometimes right. it's hard yeah. to s- I think what people misunderstand about esports, um, and it's not something I've really got to talk about on this show very often, um, is people don't understand why these people are the pros because they see you playing a game, hmm. and it looks the same as a professional playing the game. 
You know, you're doing the Hadouken, right. you're doing a Shoryuken, <laughs> you're doing yep. a Tatsumaki Senbiyaku. You know, you're doing the same things. But as a an inexperienced player, you 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 know the difference. You can see it on the screen. You can see the reactions. You can see the the quick thinking and the split second decisions. And you're like, wow. <laughs> and I think you can see a little bit more of that in Smash Four than you can in like Melee. But Street Fighter Five is definitely it's very easy to follow if you yeah. have played the game even once. So I I, I think. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I don't Paul. want to knock the the smash scene, but I think commentary in in Street Fighter tends to be of a very high quality. Um, well, you, you tend to have commentators who really know what they're talking about and who can express that and do it in the very short little blips of time you have yeah, to try absolutely. and convey. Whereas smash commentary tends to be uh, <laughs> there's quite a lot of kind of meme shouting <laughs> that goes on, <laughs> which is fine, you know. And, or and it's I, sort of like yeah. it's conversations about the people playing because they sure. can't really comment on right. what's happening I, on the screen. I do. I have to say, I like all of that stuff, you know, and I'm, I'm not knocking. There's some really good smash commentators as well. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be seen to be knocking that, but you, it's, it's sort of less informative and you really have to, like, I can, I can follow what Nairo is doing just because I know that character very well. I can't follow what anyone else is doing because I don't know their characters. Um, but just from like, I can see from the way he's moving the character around that he's a million years better than me at the game. Uh, and that's that's one of the things that's so great about <laughs> Smash is that is the movement. In in Street Fighter, the movement is a bit more defined by sort of the, the longer animations and so on. Um, so it's not quite have the same level of like totally freeform creativity in that respect. But yeah, um, but but that makes it more readable. Absolutely. Like when there's sort of defined limits that you understand when a player sort of pushes towards those limits, you're like, ah, I, I can understand why this is happening or mm. stuff like that. Um, and Street Fighter is a fighting game. So you're going to have endless amounts of hours and hours of fun yeah. on the island. Um, well, on the planet, sorry, on planet Oxford. Mm. Um, what what rank are you online now? If you if you wouldn't mind sharing, it could oh. be an embarrassing or expensive like excellent braggy (laughs) (laughs) i honestly can't even remember with with street fighter i've played so little of it i i kind of went up like two or three ranks from the lowest possible rank um and then stopped (laughs) because i got too busy so i want to apply myself to this game which is why i'm taking it with me who who do you play actually that's one we should sort of delve into who who do you play i play ryu because i'm boring (laughs) (laughs) i think at least he's not Street Fighter Four Ryu, which is like sure. yep. ultimate boring. Um, yes. Yeah. So that's pretty good. Are you I... Daigo level of Ryu? Uh, or... <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I just wanted to start with you know the obvious character and kind of really learn the game in the traditional way, and, and Ryu is still apparently a good way of doing that. Um, so that's kind of why I wanted to start with him. But um, I, I look at stuff and I, I kind of want to play Chung Li, but I know that's a terrible, <laughs> that's a terrible character for a beginner. <laughs> so uh, that maybe, maybe if I have eternity to play the game, I will be able to graduate from Ryu to, uh, to Chung Li. But, um, but in Smash, I'm still, uh, I'm still a ZSS player and I will be forever. I've, I've tried lots of the other characters and I, nothing really makes sense to me. There, there are things you can do with that character in Smash that are so annoying. Uh, that you can beat even quite good people if you just manage to annoy them enough. 
Um, so, uh, so that's, that's my character choice there. But yeah, I, I need to, I need to have some time and space to, to really learn the different Street Fighter characters and really get stuck into it. Well, you're going to have plenty of time, uh, coming up soon. So you can, you can master all of the Ryu parries and oh, yes. get on Daigo's level, uh, with all this time. <laughs> um, but we're going to move on to your next game now, which is a complete juxtaposition to what we've been talking about esports wise recently. Um, going back to a bit more of a sort of simulation strategy type title um so why don't we listen to some music from this next game and let's talk about it Next game on your list, uh, Paul, is a simulation game in a very different way. It's a prison construction and management game that was uh, developed by the wonderful Introversion Software. Uh, it released for Windows, PlayStation 4, Xbox 360, and Xbox One. Uh, and it originally released, I think it was 2015, last year, but had been in beta for a long time uh, or like paid alpha because it was originally a crowdfunded uh, title uh, it's the excellent uh, prison architect paul why is prison architects going with you to your planet oxford so i needed a game that's in what i'd call the kind of big simulation genre and everyone else at mode seven was like well obviously you have to take dwarf fortress don't you, you have to take dwarf fortress i've played dwarf fortress a couple of times and it's not it's not for me. Like I understand why there's so much scope there and everything else. I, I just it just didn't gel with me. So I'm I'm happy for if I can still read online accounts of people playing Dwarf Fortress from the planet Oxford on maybe on the library computer, then I'll be happy with that. I just want to read about it and I want to play it. Prison Architect is uh, a game that finally allowed Chris Delay, um, who's the lead designer at Introversion, it finally allowed him to do what he'd been threatening to do for sort of the early part of his career, which is to, to develop an insanely brilliant simulation. Um, <laughs> and, and he finally found the structure that allowed him to do that. And the results are amazing. So I um, first played this game, I, I sort of had a bit of time... Um, we were looking at kind of UI stuff for Frozen Synapse 2 and I allocated a bit of time to play a few different games, strategy games, to see what they did with their UI. And I started playing Prison Architect and I thought, oh, yeah, you know, oh, okay, it's a bit like Theme Hospital. UI is a bit funny in places, that's fine. And I, I played it and then I realized I played it for four hours. And then my wife came home. She normally comes home about seven o'clock uh, and I stopped working so I can spend time with her. And she came home and my prison 
uh, had a big shower block next to the generator room and water had come out of the shower block and the generator had exploded and half of the prison was on fire. <laughs> and uh, and she came in and this was happening and I, I normally cook during the week and I just turned to her and said, like, I'm, do you mind cooking tonight? Like, I, I have to sort out my prison. <laughs> and she kind of looked at what was going on and she was, oh yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> she, she could see the carnage that was happening on screen. Uh, <laughs> so, I, so I played for another four hours. Um, and I haven't played a game for eight hours in a row since I was a teenager. Um, it just absolutely gripped me. You can really imagine any system, once you kind of learn what the, the components of the, the prisons are in the game, you can imagine any system and you can translate it into the game perfectly. And then you have to deal with all these crazy dynamic events happening all the time. And it just keeps you in there. You just want to know what's going to happen next. Are you going to deal with the next intake? It's utterly compulsive. So... Um, for a game that kind of has infinite playability, which is what you're going to need in that situation, this is going to be my choice out of out of all of those things. It's weird because Prison Architect is a game I've played a few times. I've had it in my Steam list for ages. And I keep <laughs> talking about LinkedIn notifications. I get emails about Prison Architect almost yep. daily. <laughs> for some reason, Introversion Software just keeps sending emails about about updates for Prison Architect all the time. And every time one comes through, I'm always tempted to like boot it up and play again. But I, I just never have, really. I've never mm. deeply got into it. And I don't know why that is, but I have watched a lot of videos on it. And some of the stuff you can do in it just seems crazy. Just so crazy. It, it's, I mean, the, the creativity that you have. So my first prisons were kind of what I described as hell cubes where I would try and make the smallest num- smallest cells possible and the largest number of them and create this kind of future dystopian prison. I don't know why I have such dark fantasies, but that's what I did. Um, so I would do that. And then you kind of realize very quickly the limitations of that. And it, it's sort of really horrible. <laughs> you see the, the little characters going around being unhappy and, and kind of having this terrible life. And then you think, oh, no, I... I've learned a moral lesson here. I'm going to create lavish, you know, wonderful cells where every prisoner has their own TV and it's all happy. And then you do that and find the constraints of that. So you kind of, for me, one of the tests of of these games is is can you think about the game when you're not playing it? And that's definitely true of of StarCraft. Um, It's definitely true of Privateer. I like to be able to kind of imagine things, imagine what I'm going to do in the game the next time I have the chance to play and then execute it. I definitely recommend like next time you play to just sort of push through that first couple of hours where you're kind of wrestling with the UI a bit and and some of the mechanics early on sort of don't work so well. And then it really, really will unlock for you. I bounced off it the first time I played it as well. It really unlocks at a certain point and you go, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, it's (laughs) It's definitely one of those games. Have you double dipped a few times and purchased it on like PlayStation 4 or Xbox One as well? I keep meaning to the uh, the pl- the console versions were done by Double Eleven, who did our console version uh, of Frozen Synapse, um, and they're brilliant at translating um, sort of PC complex PC experiences onto console. So I really need to do that. It's it's definitely going to happen at some point. Excellent. So this game is sort of inspired by like Theme Hospital and Dungeon Keeper, and definitely Dwarf Fortress as well. Um, have you sort of played simulation games before like a lot or was this kind of like a big surprise for you when you played it theme hospital was a huge game for me i I absolutely played that to death um okay came out originally theme park theme hospital and dungeon keeper 
were, were were very important and and dungeon keeper in particular is a big mode 7 influence so a lot of what we do is kind of based on our experiences with those big box pc games where you would pay once to get the game it wasn't you know it, it, and and within that you had all these different things you had multiplayer you had lots of different game modes you had a really fully fleshed out idea if you were attracted by that concept be it making a theme park or or you know building hospital or whatever if you liked that concept you would get everything that you possibly could out of that concept from the game and yeah. you trust you trusted the developers to do that and that was that's a really really big sort of philosophical motivation for us at mode seven when we make a game there's going to be all kinds of ways that you can explore those those core ideas within the game um so yeah i I did love those games and nobody had really kind of captured that for me they just did such a brilliant job of of that plus the more modern kind of things that you see with like factorio and Rimworld and um all of those sort of modern games in that that kind of genre they really bridged that gap for me they made the connection between the bullfrog era and this this new era simulation have you ever thought about trying your hand at it, Mode 7, like having a simulation game? We've got an idea that is sort of somewhat similar to that. But what we're doing with Frozen Synapse 2 with this massive city with lots of AI controlled factions doing things dynamically um, is kind of we're, we're trying to sort of marry that kind of game with like the Crusader Kings 2 grand strategy. So we're sort of putting a different inflection on it. But this is by far the closest we've we've come to that. I don't know if we'd ever make a building game. Ian is, is not sort of massive on on the kind of creating and constructing buildings. He likes kind of creating a massive system that exists already that the player interacts with. So it's a bit of a yeah. So something yeah. different to like. SimCity or Cities sure. XL, a bit more of a kind of crazy type simulation like Prison Architect mm. or Theme Hospital, a bit more. Yeah, yeah, there, there's definitely some uh, some similarities there. But but yeah, like I said, we did have a, 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 there is an idea being kicked around for a game that is somewhat similar. I mean, we'll we'll kind of see what happens with Frozen Synapse too. I mean, in Frozen Cortex, we had a sort of gigantic simulated league um, eventually, um, which is something we worked on as an add-on where you could sort of automate your matches and trade players and things like that. So a simulation is something we've got more interested in over the years. And I, I definitely think that you're going to see that influence in our games in the future. Excellent. Well, I'm, I think I'm going to give it a go again. I think when I find some time, uh, I, I'm going to, try it um again maybe reinstall it on my steam and maybe even get the ps4 version that'll make it a little easier for me um, but yeah i'm really interested i've always been interested i get emails about it all the time like every <laughs> day i don't know if anyone else is uh like subscribed i don't even know how i think i bought the game off their website once and um and now i get emails forever from introversion so <laughs> they're good emails I'm, though they're nice emails they're always like, we have a new update. And I'm like, you guys work hard on this game. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't want my email clogged up. <laughs> just If anyone stumbled across it, they'd be like, prison? Architect? What? <laughs> <laughs> what have you got to do with building prisons, Liam? Um, but I definitely think I'm going to check it out again next time. But uh, I think it's about time we move on to your penultimate game now, your second to last game. Um, and I think this is a game that, as well, takes hours and hours from people and was just such an incredible smash hit. So why don't we listen to some really good music? I really, really like the soundtrack. Um, And then dive into the second to last game. Isaac and his mother lived alone in a small house on a hill. Isaac kept to himself, 
drawing pictures and playing with his toys as his mom watched Christian broadcasts on the television. Life was simple, and they were both happy. That was until the day Isaac's mom heard a voice from above. Your son has become corrupted by sin. He needs to be saved. I will do my best to save him, my lord, Isaac's mother replied, rushing into Isaac's room, removing all that was evil from his life. Again, the voice called to her. Isaac's soul is still corrupt. He needs to be cut off from all that is evil in this world and confess his sins. I will follow your instructions, Lord. I have faith in thee, Isaac's mother replied as she locked Isaac in his room away from the evils of the world. So, Paul, the second to last game that you're going to be taking with you uh, to Planet Oxford is the independent roguelike uh, game that was designed by Super Meat Boy developers Ed, uh, Edmund McMillan. And it's the sort of dungeon-crawling, strangely religious, iconic, <laughs> ported massively to almost every system you can think of under the sun. Uh, originally released uh, back in 2011. And I think it's just... I think it sold like 4 million copies or something. It's just been such a huge success for those guys. It's the absolutely brilliant Binding of Isaac. Paul, please tell me why you're taking this game with you. So firstly, I need to stipulate that I'm taking the Vita version uh, of this game with me. Okay, is this Rebirth as well? That is Rebirth, so yeah. That's it's fine. Rebirth as well. So it's the second version yep. of this game. <laughs> so I, I needed to take a, a roguelike with me um because you've got to have that infinite replayability you know you need something yeah that, that's gonna absolutely. last forever um and i although i appreciate spelunky i have never i've fallen in love with it i i'm not a big platformer um guy and i i something about spelunky just doesn't work for me uh don't like how the character feels to control which is interesting because that's a criticism that a lot of people level at isaac the character controls in a bit of a weird way the shooting feels a little bit weird but it's just a phenomenal game every time you go into a new room you're never sure what's going to happen next um there's a load of, of stuff that you can learn about the game to optimize your playthroughs but even if you don't know that stuff the randomness is fun uh, when you do encounter items that you understand and that you already know about, putting them to good uses is sort of exciting. Um, and there's just always new stuff to find. There's always new combinations of things. There's always different ways of approaching different problems. And it's an endlessly, endlessly fascinating game. Um, I, I just can't think of anything else that is so in-depth and so variable every time you play it. It's an astonishing game. I'm trying to just think back to any memories I sort of have about it, Isaac. Um, it's it's a game where I have a few friends who have dedicated just <laughs> weeks and weeks um, of their life to it. Um, I had one friend, I think, who's... I remember checking his Steam account once, and I think he had like 850 hours. Yeah. Just it's something mental. And although it is a roguelike, uh, it obviously has an ending as well, and obviously getting to mom and all the sort of strange things. But the game is sort of developed beyond that now from the original game. There is so many sort of outcomes and so many different things. Mm. Um, so how many times have you sort of quote-unquote finished it? 
Only like three or four times, um, which is just ridiculous for someone who claims to like the game. You know, th this is a game that people get really, really partisan about. Uh, and I, I have not done, I haven't sold my soul to uh, The Binding of Isaac yet. Um, okay. But it, it's it's just something that I, I pick it up for a bit. I'll play a few games and then I'll leave it again for, for three or four months and I'll come back to it and play it again. And I'm, I'm always going to do that. Like there, there's never going to be a time when I completely stop playing or thinking about that game. So it's yet another one that I, you, you may be detecting a theme here, which is that I don't feel like I have enough time to really <laughs> dedicate to a lot of these games. So this is one that I want to just kind of explore loads more of. It's another game that I watch quite a lot. Actually, I watch Northern Lions, um, plays of it i just find them very relaxing to watch and he obviously has a vast amount of knowledge of the game so yeah um i i like that I, i'd kind of need to to watch him playing to improve as well but it's um but it's it, it's good yeah the first time i i beat it quote unquote and beat the mom fight uh i i was just kind of overjoyed and then i immediately wanted to go back and do it again another game in this genre that i like but doesn't quite hit the same heights for me is nuclear throne um and that's just because i'm not very good at games <laughs> i don't the skill <laughs> the skill level required to uh to to be good at nuclear throne is, is pretty high and you have to play very consistently to get there but i but i really like that but every time i play that game it makes me think oh i could probably if i just got back into isaac again i could uh i could get you know somewhere further with a game that has a much more complicated meta game i love the meta game uh stuff in isaac the uh the different sort of the way you can kind of establish a plan for how you're going to proceed item-wise and the items that you want to come up um, and then having to react to the random generation if it doesn't give you those items and make gambles on them uh, is, is really yeah. cool. Really, really cool. So uh, something I wanted to talk about a little bit while we're sort of on the subject, uh, you just sort of mentioned Nuclear Throne, which is developed by Vlambeer, uh, which is Rami Ismail's game. Um, and the Bunny Isaac was created obviously by Edmund McMillan, who also developed one of my favorite games of all time, which is Super Meat Boy. Um, do you sort of look as an indie developer at other indie developers to see how they sort of handle the way they release their games? Like, Binding of Isaac was originally a Flash game and uh, sort of and then developed into being this Steam release. Um, Spelunky as well. Um do you sort of look at indie, uh, indie developers? Uh, obviously, Edmund was in Indie Game the Movie and, and had this weird like feature yeah. about him and all this sort of stuff that kind of almost glorified the indie lifestyle or the way indie <laughs> games are made. Um, do you look at others that are sort of in the same genre, especially people who release on PC, uh, to see how they do it or the way they handle things? Uh, do you ever like get together and like talk about oh, <laughs> releasing yeah. games in certain ways oh yeah all the time absolutely all the time i mean we definitely look at um at companies who do things in the same genre as we also look at at other companies that's something that we've always done we look at what bigger games companies do to market their games certainly and, and see if there's anything kind of relevant we can take from there i think a lot of indies kind of get scared of doing that or they don't want to be seen to be thinking that way so that's that's great for us we just continue doing that but there's been very direct things like we did for frozen synapse we did um uh, a pre-order gets you the beta type arrangement and this is quite early on before early access existed actually um and the reason we did that mostly was because we saw other games doing it really successfully um 
Natural Selection 2 was the big one at the time that was doing really well in a, in a sort of pre-order beta. So we thought, well, why can't we do that? Things like pricing, we, we look at, at what other people are pricing their, their games at. Um, yeah, and we do talk, There's a, certainly in the UK, there's a really good indie development scene. Um, a, a, a guy who works with us, who is our lead artist, who's a freelancer, Rich Whitelock, runs something called Oxford Indies. So there's lots of people from around the Oxford area who involved with making games who meet up there. And okay. we're we're lucky that you know every time we go to an event, we we kind of know most of the uh, the UK indie scene who who attends such things. Um, we're, we're very lucky. We have lots of friends. Yeah, so there is a lot of kind of collaboration and discussion and um, everyone feels like it's so rare that you're actually competing with someone. It can happen at times, you know, if you're releasing a similar game, a similar genre um, at the same time, you can be in competition. But it's so rare and mostly everyone just wants everyone else to do well. Yeah, it seems like a very sort of friendly community um, that gets hounded by people who don't develop games on Twitter who don't really understand how games are made. Um, but it does seem very loving and very supportive throughout. Uh, over the past few days, um, I've been noticing that Owlboy um, yeah, yeah. by D-Pad Studios is uh, released today, uh, the day we're recording, which is the 2nd of November. Um, it Like there's been so much support and love and spreading around and sharing that the game was going to be released. There. And that just, that just seems like, a really good example of what is good about video game development and to the people who make it. And I really, really like that. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, since there's definitely some very, very good things about that community. There can be elements of cliqueiness and there can be elements of sort of championing people's work just because you know them. Um, and I do think that can be unfair to some people, but the extent to which, as you say, people sort of reacted against that, I think is entirely disproportionate. Overwhelmingly, it's about supporting other creators who are doing interesting things. And that's a good thing. And the games industry is one of the only places where there is that really genuine mutual respect and support. And, and you know, people care about their customers and they care about the people playing the games. So Owlboy is, is a good example. You know, they obviously had a really terrible time making the game. I think yeah. it, took, it took them 11 years. Yeah, um, something and, like that. And so they they deserve support. You know, you saw something similar with Antichamber, uh, Alexander Bruce's game. I think that took him 10 years. Um, and he receives a lot of support from, from different people. But if you're one person or three people trying to make one of these crazy things, it takes you a very long time. You need support from other people in order to stay sane and in order to kind of have a, have a chance of competing. And that's something that I think, you know, people could do well to remember. It, this stuff doesn't just come out of, out of nowhere. And a lot of the people making it are not sort of commercially savvy people who've done MBAs or have run businesses before. So you've got to have that community. Otherwise, these sorts of games won't exist really what i do want to know and this is probably a, <laughs> a strange question uh has there sort of ever been a time when you've known someone who's developing a game that has then took off and has been a huge success and you're like what why <laughs> why the, the, the game is not that good or that person's a horrible person or you're like we could have done better or that sort of thing <laughs> um i'm trying to think of an example I think, Obviously, don't name names, but <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I can, I can honestly say that I've never met a developer who I think is a terrible person who's had a lot of success. 
um, I, I've never I've never had that combination of things. It's very rare that you meet um, a, an indie game developer who um, who you don't like and get on with, in my experience, which is which is very lucky. And I I think indie yeah. game development attracts people who are you know quite considerate people sort of at worst you know you have to be thoughtful in order to make a games and, and thoughtful people generally tend to be nice i'm really straying into huge generalizations here um <laughs> i think you do see things there's certainly jealousy there's certainly jealousy over certain things that 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 come up um i think one of the games that really caught everyone by surprise that was talked about a lot was undertale and that's because it's clearly a game that's been made by someone who didn't set out to have a career in in game development, it, it, and that's very rare. Like a, a lot of the games, indie games that get made that are successful, people are kind of really hoping that they're going to make money, and they really hope that they're going to be able to go on and make more games. And what what Toby Young did was he kind of just made this thing. Uh, for very personal creative reasons and then saw it blow up in this enormous way uh, and didn't have any kind of, you know, any commercial structure or whatever around that. So to see yeah. that, to see someone who can just be like, I'm going to have this idea, I'm going to make this game, I'm going to make millions of dollars and I'm going to like not turn up and collect my awards because I, I didn't care about all that stuff. That's like, everyone's jealous of that, right? That you, want, <laughs> you want that to be. I don't know Toby Young. He seems like a very nice person. Um, he His game is really funny. Uh, and it, and it's great, and it deserves success. I'm not saying that it does not deserve success. <laughs> just to clear that up, um, it's it's a really interesting game. It's really original. It's really funny. Huge amount of work put into it. Cool music, all that kind of stuff. But seeing that game, I think for for a lot of people, you just kind of go, oh, why do I bother? You know, we try and do all these things. We try and do marketing. You try and. Um, sort of incrementally build up over a number of years and yet someone can still rock up and 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 create this thing and do really well but that's great and that should always be the case and there should always be things where you just go i don't get this like why do people why do people like that that's why games is is interesting why it's an interesting place to work because it is so volatile and because anyone can come in and um and do this stuff and i would not change that at all but yeah you you get jealous ah <laughs> it does seem so loving though that there doesn't seem to be any sort of animosity between anyone um I mean, but yeah obviously sure. every, everyone yeah i don't want everyone... to i'm not minimizing as well you know some people have negative experiences with other people that's just going to happen and it, it happens within indie games and some people have kind of maybe gone to events and didn't feel included in the events and i'm not saying that that stuff doesn't happen this is just my experience yeah. of it uh well, entirely and 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 those things need to be sorted out if people do have negative experiences yeah. within within the community so i just want to stress all that as well it's not yeah. a sort of perfect happy world it's it's a group of human beings who do things and have interests in things you know? game development game development i know from past experience is really really fucking hard and yeah. everyone sort of has this common thing like almost this common like <laughs> you say to someone oh i'm really busy and and they just know they know yeah, why yeah, yeah. It, because you're crunching or something's gone wrong uh, yeah. they know and they can sympathize with that and i sort of I feel like you all have a sort of common ground mm. there um but yeah that's really interesting so i think it's about time we moved on to your final game now and get get prepped 
to ship you off to your monorail and to your <laughs> planet to play these eight games. And a very interesting last game um, that I have no idea about. Um, so I'm very interested to talk about it. Um, so why don't we listen to some music from this next game and let's talk about Paul's final game. So we're moving on now to Paul's final game, and it's a game developed by the Bitmap Brothers, if I'm correct, I believe so. Yep. Um, it was a game that originally released in 1990, uh, based on a violent, futuristic cyberpunk sport uh, that sort of is kind of like a weird crossover between like hockey and like handball, I think. Um, it's been released for multiple systems, like from right from like the Atari ST, Amiga, all the way to most recently like the Xbox 360. Um, I don't know which version you're taking with you specifically, Paul. Um, the game is called Speedball 2 and sometimes has the hyphen title Brutal Deluxe. Yes. Um, so which version are you taking with you? And please tell me why this is the final game. I'm taking the Mega Drive version with me. Um, okay. Because the 16-bit versions were the, the best. Um, the remake was okay. The graphics were a bit weird. Uh, Speedball Two is. I needed to take a sports game um, again for sort of infinite replayability. And I think of all the different sports games I played. You know, I played sort of sensible soccer and all of those old school, the early FIFA games, right through to kind of modern FIFA games, um, the Madden games, and so on. And there's nothing that's quite as pure as Speedball Two. And it's a game that I I just absolutely love revisiting. I love playing the single player mode and kind of going up through the league and, and picking up money and, and buying, trying to get the good players early on. And I just love repeating that process over and over again, you know, buying the good center forward and then just charging everyone down uh, and earning points by uh, causing injuries to the other team. Um, it's so exciting to play. It's it's just has this fluidity to it that's completely absent from a lot of games, and it's just a really perfect game design. It's it's such a well balanced game design. It's a very silly game. Uh, it, it's very pure in terms of its kind of you have fun straight away. You don't really need to think. And also, and it's another one where the idea of never playing it again would be so sad to me if I if I was stuck on this planet and I couldn't couldn't okay. download ROMs on the library computer. I would be pretty sad at, at not being able to play uh, Speedball 2 ever again. So um, that's why it's there. <laughs> it sounds like a very, it seems like a very interesting choice as your sports game, <laughs> considering all the other sports games you could have taken. It's sort of, I just sort of looked at screenshots of it now, and um, it, it looks like 
basically a whole team of Robocops going up against a whole team of other Robocops yeah. and them throwing a very, very small yes. ball. Um, it's really small <laughs> and it's the color. It's it's like a gray color, very similar to the rest of the floor and background. Mm. So I don't even know how you could see it. Oh, it's, it's surprising. <laughs> it has it has glint on it. I mean, the, the pixel art in the Bitmap Brothers game is absolutely wonderful. Um, and this is no exception. They have this really weird kind of stunted perspective. Um, I've been reading, a, there's a book that's just come out, um, which is a sort of history of the Bitmap Brothers. Um, uh, that's yeah. really, really good. Uh, it has a lot of artwork in um recommend you check that out uh and in that they were saying that they had to kind of make the hands and heads of the players really big so that you could see what was happening from that weird perspective so it doesn't look like anything else as you say everything's gray uh in this very sort of 90s robocopish future um and it's it's just so it's so weird that the characters can slide around um so you you do spend a lot of your time sliding and bashing into other people uh, and I really like the single player. Yeah, yeah. You, you do like almost like a vanquish kind of slide across the yes. screen. I've I'm seen. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it, it's brilliant. And um, the the music is while extremely repetitive is uh, is quite addictive as well. But there's just something. It's just a very compelling game. If you if you sit down to play a bit, you want to play kind of all the way through the league and and get to the end of the game um, every time. So I I would definitely like to just have that experience available whenever I wanted it. Just switch it on and yep. just play That's through right. it. Just smash into loads of Robocops <laughs> with a... It looks really fun. I actually kind of... I, I really enjoy... One of my favorite sort of uh, weird genres is I really enjoy weird sports yeah, games. Then, then this like, is perfect for you. <laughs> yeah, like Rocket League, yep. uh, like Super Mario Strikers, mm. or just anything that takes like what i really like which is like sports and um makes it weird not like boring standard simulation type games but you know and this does look like a heck of a lot of fun so ah i you know with prison architect and this as well i i've got a few games to try this week i feel um which is i'm glad i'm glad my list of making eternity bearable has come up with some nice recommendations for you in your normal (laughs) life Well, as long as you're happy with it, because you're the one who's going to be dealing with it now, because we are going to ship you off now. Um, I don't know how you're going to get there. I think maybe we'll give you a ship um, from Wing Commander to get there, like a bog standard ship, um, with only one course, though. And as soon as you arrive there, it breaks down, and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) You're stuck there to uh, play these next uh, play these eight games uh, for the rest of your days. But, Paul, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. No, it's it's been really, really enjoyable. I realized that I think I called the developer of Undertale Toby Young, who is a terrible, Toby a terrible right-wing Toby commentator. Fox. And I don't want to confuse him with... Uh, with Toby Fox. <laughs> no, his name is his name is Toby yes. Fox. Hey, yeah, he's a young, young, young fella who um made a really cool game and got very successful and deserves <laughs> all his success yeah especially for that oh, yeah. soundtrack yeah great soundtrack. Ooh, the undertale soundtrack wow and he, he made it as I well know. which is just it's, incredible it's, it's like, sickening, isn't it? not only did he make the game he made the soundtrack man i wish i had such <laughs> talent um but yes before we ship you off though paul and i feel quite sad because i i just want to continue talking with you it's been a real oh, pleasure you. um I have to ask you, which is the last question I ask everyone, 
Um, and that's if I know very similar to my guest last week, uh, you sort of have predominantly chosen PC games and obviously you're going to get to play them. Um, but the last question I ask barring PC is that if you could choose only one games console to take with you, um, what console would it be? Uh. Taking into consideration the back catalog of a of a console, um, you're not allowed backwards compatibility. <laughs> so if you choose like PlayStation Three, you can't have PlayStation One and PlayStation Two. Okay. So, uh, wow, that's that's really hard question. Um, and also, I have to not offend any of our lovely platform holders <laughs> with my, with my answer. No. So I think the, I feel like these days, I feel like these days the, the fanboy war, the fanboy wars have sort of ended a little bit. Sure. sure. Um, um, I think I'm going to go with the mega drive. Um, and I think I have to do that because if I can only take one system with me, I want to take something that really reminds me, you know, of, of happy times in my life. There are some really great games on the Mega Drive. As long as I get the whole back catalogue, there's some really bad ones as well. But I, I think it has to be the Mega Drive. Yeah. Yeah, the Mega Drive is, I think, a fantastic console. And I think it's an excellent choice to take with you. It's a nice compliment uh, to go along with the eight games you've chosen as well, which is sort of more like high-class PC games as well. And um, so... We are here now, and we are shipping you off, Paul. So, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, please tell the wonderful listeners who have listened to the show so far where they can find you on the internet, um, and also what they should be checking out of Mode 7 that's yes, coming up. if you up. want more of me after listening to two hours of me talking, then good for you. You'll probably enjoy my Twitter, which is Mode7Games, <laughs> M-O-D-E Mode 7 Games on Twitter. We're at Mode7Games.com. Watch out for stuff on Frozen Synapse 2 and, of course, Tokyo 42 coming very soon. We'll have a lot more trailers and announcements and stuff. Um, I'll tweet all of those or you can get them from the website. So uh, please do check those out. Excellent. And actually, I do have to ask, Paul, um, just before I let oh, you go on the subject yeah. of Twitter, how do you keep up with the Star Wars joke? How I, do you do it? It's excellent. I, I honestly <laughs> can't stop doing it. And people keep telling me that I should automate it and that completely would ruin would absolutely ruin what I'm doing. So I don't know why. I don't know why I'm doing it. I f every day I wake up and I genuinely, I worry that I'm going to forget to do it every day. Uh, and has, has there been a day where you've almost I forgotten? Did, so last year I did forget a couple of times. This year so far I have not missed a single day, even when traveling. Um, so I don't know what's going on with it. I, I, it's, best, it's best to not think about it. <laughs> So for anyone who doesn't know, I'm not going to spoil it, but just follow Paul on Twitter um, and and you'll know. You'll know. After a few days, you'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> but yes, we have come to the end of the show and thank you so much to Paul and thank you so much to you who has listened this far. Um, obviously, this is Final Games and you can catch us every week on iTunes and also SoundCloud as well. You can also find us on Twitter at Final Games Show and you can also find me, uh, Liam Edwards, at Liam BME. Uh, I don't have any Star Wars jokes for you and my tweets are usually rubbish, but you can follow me anyway. Um, if you want to email us for any reason, if you want to inquire about the show or ask a question or even tell me what your eight games are, which a lot of people do, um, please email 
finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. If you could and you like the show, please go ahead and rate and review and do all those wonderful things that really push those wonderful SEO numbers and all that sort of wonderful stuff. Um, That would be really fantastic. Thank you once again for listening to Final Games, and I really hope you'll join us again next week. Goodbye.